0: start that again. Verse 6, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Our Father, we, we turn to your word this morning, Lord, with anticipation of your precious spirit to accompany your holy word, Lord, I pray to profoundly touch the hearts of your people. I ask, Lord God, that this time would be a blessing to the body of Christ, honoring to your name, and Father, if There happens to be somebody in this room this morning that in their heart they know they are not right with you. Father, I pray that the supernatural power of the Spirit of God would profoundly bring the truth of the Word to bear in their mind and heart in this event this morning. And that you would call them to yourself And they would taste that sweetness of salvation to be born again. And to see Jesus Christ for all the majesty and glory that He is. And I pray and ask this in your power, by your power, and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. There is incredible power in a testimony. In a witness. Now, part of that power depends on the witness or the testimony of the individual giving that witness or giving that testimony. I don't know if I've ever shared this um, with you, at least from the pulpit, but uh, I prayed to receive the Lord Jesus when I was seven or eight years old. And we were homeschooling, and mom and I were studying uh, history that morning. And in the studying we were doing, we covered a portion of the Civil War. And in that study, I heard the testimony of General Robert E. Lee. By God's supernatural working in a seven, eight year old's little heart, little brain, folk called to do something. And so I told my mom, I said, I, I believe that I am a sinner. I, I believe, I, I see what God has done, I see what Jesus died. And I want to be saved. And if I recall, I remember saying, I want to be saved like you and dad are saved and like Robert E. Lee was saved. And uh, prayed the prayer uh, and asked the Lord to save me, my little chubby hand in her hand and asked the Lord to redeem me. I'm not positive that that was the moment I got born again. I I don't know. And to be quite honest, theologically, I'm not concerned about it. But in that moment, something so powerfully was going on. And what kicked it off was a testimony, a witness. And this morning, I have invited the Apostle Paul to come and share his testimony with you. Um, Now, Relax, he's not really, yeah, he's not really coming, but uh, I'm going to preach from portions of the Bible, he's not coming. But I want to share his testimony with you this morning, because what's so potent about the witness or the testimony of the Apostle Paul is he was confronted by someone he considered dead and in the ground, and it walloped him something good. So here's the outline, super simple if you're keeping notes, Saul's background Saul's passionate pursuit to destroy the way, I'm sorry, Saul. Saul confronted and converted and one of the greatest trophies of grace in history. So first, let's look at Saul's background. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. It's important, we're going to be landing in chapter 9 of Acts and spending a good chunk of our time there, beloved. But first, I just want to give you a little bit of a flavor of who is this guy prior to conversion. Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 5. This is Paul giving his background. Now, he's doing this in the context of an argument that he's building up, showing that his background brought no help to his salvation, but only Christ alone. But I'm just going to take the chunk of his background to give us some historical basis. Verse 5, "...circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church." as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Now, when we read that, we hear words Pharisee, and we hear the law, and we as New Testament believers, we read that and our first thought is bad guy. Well, that that may be how it lands on our ears, but the ears of his readers here, and the ears particularly of the Jewish community at this time, those are the highest of credentials he could lay out. Really, what he's saying when he gives this is, I was the cream of the crop, the best of the best. Everything that should be at the top, I accomplished that. I was a strong follower of God in his mind and in the minds of the Jewish people of that time. Circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. I was a Pharisee, and we hear Pharisee and we think that's bad. That's not how it worked in the minds of the people at this time. The Pharisees were the super-spiritual of the day. And he says, uh, according to the law, found blameless. In other words, according to the way they read the law and according to the way they dealt with the law and interpreted the law, I had no sin. And as to zeal, I persecuted the church with passion. Why? Because the church was an enemy. False doctrine in the minds of these people at this time. I was a powerhouse, if you will. I was the one who had all these, all these boxes that the Jewish leaders wanted checked. I checked everyone perfectly. Acts 22, verse 3. Acts 22, 3. Whoever gets there first gets to uh, follow with me. (laughs) Acts 22, verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to stretch... I'm sorry, it's 23. 22. 22, verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted the way to death, binding and putting both men and women into prison." Now, we hear that name Gamaliel, and it doesn't necessarily strike us, but Gamaliel was a leader at this time who is extremely respected. You see that in another portion in the book of Acts. This was a man held up in high esteem. So when the Apostle Paul uh, is giving this argument, referring to his life prior to Christ, and he says, I was trained under Gamaliel, again, he's saying, this: I am the best of the best. I was trained under one of the most respected leaders of the day. Acts 26, 5. Acts 26, 5. And if you're jotting down notes, just say Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, and you can get a good chunk of Saul's background. Acts 26, verse 5. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion the strictest sect of our religion. So, all I'm trying to communicate with these passages is the fact that this guy was the leader of leaders in the sense of his credentials prior to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. He had everything. Within the religious scope that he was living in, he had checked every box. He had a great background as far as his circumcision, as far as being raised the right way by his parents, But then also in his life, walking and living in such a way that checked all those boxes as well. A stellar man in the eyes of the Jewish people. And so if you were to ask him, uh, before his conversion, Saul, are you a righteous man? Yes. And he would show you the pedigree. He'd show you the pedigree. Well, now I want to show you Saul's passionate pursuit to destroy the way. This is another part of his background, Acts chapter 7. We're going to be in Acts for the majority of of this piece. Acts chapter 7, just one verse, verse 58. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. This is the stoning of Stephen, the first New Testament martyr. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, when I was a little boy and read that, I remember thinking, okay, so he's like the butler, he's like the coat guy, right? Hey, we've got a job to do, kid, take care of our coats. That's not the idea here. The idea is actually he's overseeing the stoning when they take their coats and give their coats to him. How do I know that? Well, number one, that's a piece of kind of the historical context here. But when you come to chapter 8, it's so obvious Saul is a leader in this whole event going on. Saul is the one getting papers. Saul is the one who's pursuing the people of the way. So he's not just some kid in the midst of a stoning. He's in leadership here. Not only that, but remember, all the credentials I gave to you up to this point, that's the background of this man. This guy is headed for greatness in the minds of these people. Now look to chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Uh, just jot down in your Bible there, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, because this is all according to God's perfect plan for the church. It says, Except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now, 26 verse 9. Acts 26 verse 9. I told you we were going to be traveling today. Acts chapter 26 verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He's telling the story of his life before conversion. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities." So, beloved, this was not a mere calm, cool, collective guy in reference to what he was doing. He was so passionate. Do you hear the language where it says that he was, he was raging against the church? The passion here where not only did I drag them into the courts, into prison, but then I put my vote against them. I even sought to make them blaspheme. This is a dirty fellow. Now, again... Cutting him a little bit of slack, okay? In his mind, he is passionate in serving God. Paul himself, in Romans chapter 10, will make reference to the fact that the Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He very much had that. Personally, before he came to Christ, the Apostle Paul had a passion in his mind. This sect needs to be run out of town. And so I'm going to spend my life ravaging this group of people. I will destroy the people of the way. I will destroy Christians. I will do away with this sect following this dead leader. John 16. John 16. I find this very interesting, beloved, okay? Think of the irony of what's said here. Look at verse 1 of 16. The Lord Jesus, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Underline in your Bible they in verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. The Apostle Paul, or rather Saul, is walking in in fulfillment of that very statement made by the Savior. At some point, he's he's, he's telling these Apostles at this time, at some point this is going to come into your life, where there will be people who will breathe threats against you, ravage against you, and do great harm. Saul is a fulfillment to that. Now here's what's so interesting. He does it and he'll also be the one who receives it. So here's a question. It would have been interesting to hear Saul speak on his perspective regarding Jesus Christ as Saul to sit down with him. Okay, so here's this guy. He comes into town, and you're not not a Christian. You're not a people of the way. You're not involved in that at all. You're not his enemy. And you come up to him, you go, hey, hey, um, Saul, what's driving you? Why are you so against this group of people? What, what, I mean, I can see that vein in your temple, dude. What, what are you so angry about? Why are you so after this group? His answer, I have a passion for God. And this false teacher, Jesus Christ, has declared himself to be God. You know what they did? Rubbed him out. They crucified him. They killed him. And perhaps he bought into the lie at that time that his disciples took his body from the grave. I don't know. But nonetheless, that's my perspective. So wait a minute, wait a minute, Saul. What do you think about Jesus? What's your answer about Jesus Christ? His view, no doubt, would have been that of the other Jewish leaders of his own day. Jesus was a leader of a certain sect that were dangerous and harmful to the true people of God, Israel. He would have a fiery passion to rub this group out and so do it as fast as he can with great aggression. Jesus Christ, in the mind of Saul, is a dead man. A martyr for the sect that he started. But there's this group that is still growing and growing well and I must stop this. Their leader is a dead man. There's no danger here from him. It's just his followers, and so I am going after them with all I have. The Scripture tells us that we are backbiters, haters of God by nature, dead in sins and trespasses. The Scripture says that no man seeks after God. No one comes to, the, comes to the Lord Jesus apart from the Father's drawing of him. It's pretty bleak, beloved. If you really want to be honest with yourself and with your Bible and ask the Lord, Lord, what am I apart from grace? The Bible has stuff to say. And it's a humdinger. But as you come to this storyline in Saul, he's a fascinating man. Because in his mind, He's passionate for the Lord. If you were to say, you're just a lost sinful man who's angry and you're just following, against, you're going against the Lord and you're just wrapped up in man-made religion, his response would be, what are you, nuts? I'm following the Lord. I'm being obedient to him. I'm doing away with false teaching and the error to call this Jesus God. And up to that point, beloved, Jesus is merely a dead man. He doesn't exist, he's not here, he's just another religious wingnut that started a sect that followed him, and then we killed him, and now it's done, but there's still some folks trying to, quote-unquote, resurrect his teaching and follow that. And so I see fit that it's my job to go with all I got to destroy it. Acts chapter 9. So my hope, beloved, is that now in your mind you have, and I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, knew what I shared with you, but I wanted to bring it and make it fresh in your mind before we come to nine to ask the question, so Dan, what's the the starting point? What's the beginning place in Saul's conversion? Is Saul simply just a pretty good guy that, you know, he's not that bad, he's just trying to follow Jesus, or understand who Jesus is, or the people of the ways. No, diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ, and to all those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not on his way to conversion in any way, shape, or form. Rather, he is one who's seeking to rub out the church. Listen to this. It gives us, again, another picture of the venom in the man. Verse 1 of chapter 9 of Acts. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Why? And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the desire, his desire to go to Damascus is... Now I not only have the aggression, not only do I have the conviction, not only do I have the passion in my soul, but I've got the authority. I've been authorized to go here, hand in those papers, find anybody that names the name of Jesus Christ, bind them and drag them back and imprison them. And according to other things he said, cause them to blaspheme, put his charge against them, And perhaps eventually lead to their death if they just will not reject Jesus Christ. What I love about this is in the mind of Saul, whether he was what kind of animal he was riding or whether he was walking, it it, we're not told. But here's this guy on this road, and he's traveling. And I would imagine, to some extent, he's excited. There's excitement here. There's. There's a passion in his soul. I'm following the Lord. Now, think about this. This is interesting. His obedience to the Lord is also well-fed by the flesh in this passion that he has here. This is a self-righteous man in the truest sense of the word. And he's on his way. I've got my commission. I've been authorized. I'm passionate. I have all this pedigree. Everything is behind me in this. I am set. And the son of the living God knocks him over the head with a two by four. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you Persecuting me. The Saul, Saul is there for emphasis, but you also see this throughout the Old Testament scripture when a name is is brought up numerous times. There's a level of intimacy when David says, Oh, Absalom, Absalom. Eli, Eli. The, The different times, and then you come here where Saul, Saul, does the Lord know his name? Yeah, he knows his name, but he's grabbing the attention. Saul, Saul, wait a second, who is this? How does he know my name? Beloved, put yourself in his sandals for a bit. Okay, you're going down that road, bright light, you're thrown to the ground, and then this voice comes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I've always wondered, and this has nothing really to do with the text, it's just pure curiosity in the brain of Dan Mason, which is a very interesting place, but I've always wondered, did it sound identical to the voice he had during his earthly ministry, or was it a different kind of tone? I don't know. I don't know. I just have always wondered, what did that voice sound like? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Side note, notice he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those who follow me? Or, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the people of the way? He doesn't talk like that. Rather, what he says is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What I derive from that is that the Lord Jesus takes the suffering of his people so intimate, so close that the persecution of God's people is the persecution of Jesus Christ. The love and the passion that our Savior has for us, that if somebody touches you, they're touching a son of God, daughter of God. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's also another piece to that, that really Saul's breathing of his threats and anger and all this stuff, what's at the very core of that is his bitter anger towards Jesus Christ. Not necessarily the people of the way. Oh, sure, they, they may abuse followers of Jesus, they may do harm to the church, but in the depths of their soul, no, this is between them and the Lord. This is between them and Christ. See that, beloved, there's a thing there in reference to even in our day where we can become so personal thinking people are doing harm to us. You've got to remember that the word makes it clear. What is in the heart of man is an anger, a hatred towards God. You represent them. The scripture goes so far as to say, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Beloved, you are merely an ambassador for the person of Christ. This is why he said, they hate me, they'll hate you also. They don't have me, or they don't want you, it's because they don't have me. They hate you because they hate me, because they hate my Father. Jesus says this over and over and over again. The persecution you're receiving because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your stance on truth is because of a deep-seated hatred, a natural man towards God. The interesting part is that usually something, uh, kind of an icing is put over that hatred to say, no, I'm just mad at Christians because, I'm mad at Christians because, no, 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 the, the truth is because they really are at enmity with God deep in their heart. And let us be careful not to make the mistake of chase the symptoms and miss the main source. And so this is (laughs) the dead man confronting Saul. Saul saw why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? Don't don't get too caught on that, Lord. That's just another word for sir. It's an appropriate thing for him to ask. He's not saying, oh, now you're my Lord instantaneously. That's not what's being said in the text. What's being said there is, who are you, sir? Remember, all he knows at this point, flash, ground, who are you, sir? Who am I persecuting? Which I think would have been an interesting question back to Saul, well, who have you been persecuting this whole time? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Very interesting. A specific person of the Trinity whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. God, in his grace, when he's calling someone to himself, will break them. Now, you'll be broken more as believers too, but there has to be a poverty of spirit, a spiritual poverty, a recognition of your fallenness, of your weakness. And at times, if you listen, there's many different testimonies of different people throughout history. Often it was something that triggered their humility, the method that the Lord used to call them to himself. Somebody lost the use of a a hand or they were in a bad accident and they were dependent upon other people or many different things like this or a loved one died and they felt utterly insecure and scared of death. And there's lots of different paths that the Lord chooses to make himself known to people. With Saul, he took away his sight. Now, think about the humility within the few minutes of this event, okay? I am young, I am powerful, I am authorized, and I've got the best background a man could have, charge. And within seconds like a little baby on the ground, unable to find where he's going to the point that the men with him led him by the hand into Damascus. God lovingly humbled this man. In God's grace, he humbled him. Now, this is the cool part, ready? All he's doing in humbling him is showing him how things have always been. See, it's a farce. The whole thing is a lie. Where Paul, where Saul thought that he had all of these things, where he was strong and robust and all this kind of stuff, it takes just a little tiny thing. The Lord just okay. Well, you can't see. Done. Okay, you can't see. So now, so now what, Saul? I mean, you're just a powerhouse, right? You're going to destroy the church. I'll, I'll deal with this. Jesus, I'll deal with his people. No problem. Just, stay, just don't stand in my way. Boom. Can't see. Done. Let us be so careful when we find ourselves intimidated by some mere man who thinks he's going to come at the church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The sovereign of the universe said that. So some puny little June bug guy comes and says, well, I can do this. And the Lord just, boom, nope, you won't. You won't. How many people in history have said, I will do away with the the church. I'll, I'll disprove the Bible. I'll do away with God. I'll prove him wrong. You know where they are? Well, A, converted, B, under wrath. But they die. And the church gets scared and fearful and does what we should do in protecting the body. But beloved, don't fear, man. Good grief. the Sovereign of the universe is coming up against him. Look, here's Saul. What a man who would put fear in any of us at this time, right? This is Saul. Yeah, sovereign of the universe. Done. Done. I find myself, and I'll just speak to Dan's own soul, from my own soul, I find myself so often so intimidated by guys, by by people, by humans. And the sovereign of the universe says, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Don't fear him who can kill the body, only fear him who can kill the body and put the soul in hell. Dan, what are you doing being intimidated and scared by humans? The sovereign of the universe is your God. Relax. Yeah, I know, but he's Saul, and he's so powerful, and he has authority, God. Oh, he has authority, does he? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's my segue because the Lord is going to call a brother, one of our brothers, to go. Look at verse 9. I'm sorry, 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might again or he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, "Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name." Okay. So the Lord comes to Ananias and he commissions him but the Lord also graciously uh, holds the punch or lightens the blow on Ananias, okay? Because he comes and says, I want you to go to a street, on a street called Straight, and over there is this man, Saul. And he's been praying, and I've let him know you're coming. So he's lightened the blow. He didn't just say, hey, go find Saul who's breathing threats and talk to him. But do you see Ananias' response? I, it's one of the more comical parts of Scripture. And the reason it's comical is because, man, I can relate with this guy. But Ananias inf- informs the Lord of who Saul is. Now, hold on, Lord. I know, I know you said Saul. I'm sure you're mistaken. So let me, uh, let me, let me just let you know, he, he's got authority. Uh, maybe he's a powerhouse. He's, he's got all this background. And, and he's here to destroy people like, like me one of your followers, and so, Lord, uh, um, maybe not. You know, maybe, maybe in your Rolodex you hit Saul and it should have been Sam or something. I don't know what's going on here. Now, we laugh and joke and we say, come on, And I swear, this is a sovereign God, but there are times where we know what God wants us to do. It's crystal clear. But the apparent barrier in front of us seems so ginormous, there's no way I can do that. And, and, and the Lord's sovereignty and our trust in his power is just this tiny little thing. And this bad guy or this, this individual or this difficult situation that's in front of us, is just so tall, so big. And you just think, there's just no way. And so I utterly relate with Ananias that his response to the Lord is, Lord. This guy, I can't. And the Lord, in grace, listened to his son and then said, too bad. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. That's pretty simple, right? It's a good dad word. Go. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, this is very, very potent, it's very full. Okay, this, these few words that are said by the Lord to Ananias here. And part of that, beloved, is because of how much ink in your Bible was penned by the Spirit of God, but through this particular man Ananias is going to. 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. First and 2 Thessalonians, First and 2 Timothy, Titus. It's this guy. Romans. It's this guy. A good portion of Acts tells us about the traveling. It's this guy, this man that Ananias just said, Lord, I'm not sure. Imagine if in that moment God told Ananias, well, he's going to pen the majority of the New Testament, so I need you to go. This guy is my chosen instrument. You see, Ananias, I recognize you you have been stumbling a little bit over the authority of him, but I want to tell you I have authority over him. See, Saul thought that he had authority over you. I have authority over you and over Saul. I have selected this man. I have chosen this man. This man is coming. Period. And so, Ananias, you need to not worry about what you can see, but just worry about what I've told you and walk in obedience to it. Stand up and go and walk in obedience for he's a chosen instrument of mine. Now, it's very interesting, you guys. This is a side note, okay? Remember, the only thing standing between you and that delicious food is me, so just relax. (laughs) It's it's interesting to me. Have you you asked this to yourself before as you're reading the New Testament? Why did the Lord set Paul aside for the Gentiles? He's like the perfect guy for the Jews, right? Look at his background. Look how perfect he is to be that guy to go to the Jews. And no doubt, he had some encounter with, with the Jews also and before kings, apparently in this text, but specifically set apart to go into the Gentiles. why did the Lord do that? I'm sure there's, you know, the Lord's multifaceted in the way he works in everything, but one thing particular is that he is the best man to guard the Gentiles against the false teaching of the Jews throughout the New Testament time. Read the book of Galatians. Just read through the book of Galatians and listen to this man as a inspired, perfect lawyer absolutely trash the argument that there needs to be justification by faith in Christ slash justification by faith in Christ and obedience to the law. Taking the sign of circumcision to do these Old Testament rituals, to follow these as well as faith in Christ, and then that's salvation. And Paul goes to work in that book in some of the most profound arguments in our Bible, declaring the truth of the gospel. And so why did the Lord set him him apart for the Gentiles specifically? I think one thing, at least, is he is the best man to defend the truth of the gospel on behalf of the Gentiles to the false teaching of the Jews of their day. And the Lord said this before the very beginning, before Ananias even gets to his house. The Lord said, he's a chosen instrument of mine. I've set him apart to go and do this job. And guess what? He will do this job. So Ananias' response... Verse 17. So Ananias departed, <laughs> that's it, <laughs> and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very interesting. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Think about that, that moment. The scales fall from his eyes, he regains his sight, but here's what's so glorious. Yeah, he can see colors now with these, but he sees Christ with the eyes of his heart now. Now he has a fresh, bright, new understanding of Christ. All things. Now, think about what you have here. You have a man who is absolutely loaded for bear in his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, and now he has the key to unlock all of those Old Testament scriptures with the Lord Jesus. See how the Lord's Lord's priming the pump for the evangelistic endeavor of this man? It is so incredible to think of how God's building up this warrior to send out into gospel ministry. I loved how Kent Hughes put it in his commentary. He said, when we started in verse 1, he was the hunter, but the whole time he was being hunted. Where the sovereign of the universe pursued him with tenacious grace and brought him to himself and made him his own and now says, you're mine and it's time to go to work. So now I want you to look at A few passages with me that he is one of the greatest trophies of grace in Scripture. Look at verse 19. And he took bread and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving, again, with the Old Testament scriptures, by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I just find it so incredible to watch the transformation in this man within three days. As he's on his way, he gets thrown. In that time, the Lord calls Ananias. Ananias comes to him, converted, filled with the Spirit of God, baptized, encouraged, and then he just can't get, he can't get fast enough out to the world with this truth. Like one brother said, what do you do with good news? You tell good news. Haven't you ever heard a piece of good news where you're thinking, I just got to tell somebody. I don't care who it is. You grab the mailman by the arm. Get over here. I got to tell you something really quick, right? You, there's just something so full of your heart. I remember one time uh, when Amber and I were dating, talking to the mailman about this girl. And I thought, this is so weird. But I was so happy in my heart. I, just, I had to talk to somebody. And he was, you know, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) But you've been there, beloved. If you've been born again, you know what it tastes like. I'm brand new. I'm brand new. And I have so many people around me that are still in darkness. And you can see that in the heart of the apostle as he writes throughout the New Testament. Is this guy's passion for those that are still under that... That domain of darkness that he was under. Galatians chapter 1, if you would. Galatians chapter 1, verse 23. Galatians 1.23, we'll start with 22. He says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. So the word's getting out. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. They were glorifying God because of me. Philippians, just a few pages to your right. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. He knows exactly what he's speaking of there, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Second Timothy 4. Again, just a few pages to your right. Second Timothy 4. Verse 7. Particularly seven, but I want six to be connected to it. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. From start to finish, that testimony, beloved, is so incredibly powerful. And what's so special about it is not only do we have lots of ink telling us who he was, what he was doing, his conversion, and then the rest of his days passionately pursuing the people of God and the lost. We read that and we say, that is so incredible. And then God gives us many, many letters in the New Testament scripture, inspired by the Spirit, written from the man who shares this testimony which adds so much sweetness to the words and to what is said and to the theology written in the New Testament as it flows out of this man who was so dramatically converted on that day with passion in his heart to destroy the church and then became one of the greatest warriors for Jesus Christ till death. Last verse of the morning, Acts chapter 17. This is the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill there in Athens and found the, the um, statue to the unknown God. They, they had different statues and different things to all the many gods, and then they thought, you know what, let's, let's cover our bases, so we'll throw one out there to the unknown God since he's unknown, just in case, so we catch all of them. Listen to what the Apostle does with that. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each, of, from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. He's quoting their songs of the day. For we also are His children. Being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, now, verse 30 and 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God, has now declare, God is now declaring to men, that's mankind, that all people everywhere should repent. And listen to what he puts out there as the sign. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. How? How, Paul? How did he do that? By raising him from the dead. God has declared a, a gospel, a good news, a saving message. And you say, how do I know that's the true message? The answer the scripture gives is what Dennis read from chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians and the same passage here in, in 17, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beloved, you and I are standing on an empty tomb if you're a believer this morning. If you're a Christian and you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the very central main point is that, yes, he died on that cross, but far uh, connected to that, rather, is that he rose from the dead. He has power over death. He rose and then ascended to the Father, at the right hand of the Father, and has promised to return for his church. So here's my question. Have you dealt with Christ? You have this clear in your head. Do you know where you stand with him? Because here's what's interesting. This is a very fascinating passage because he says he commands all people to repent. I realize there's other passages that make references to invitation to receive the free gift, and and that is absolutely a part. But it's fascinating to me that here he says he commands all people to repent. Why? Because this is reality. The resurrected Christ is, is reality. It is not merely a doctrine celebrated in this wall between these walls. This is the reality for everybody. Every single person, this is their reality. Somebody goes, Well, I'm not a Christian, I wasn't raised that way. Doesn't matter. This is your reality. Jesus Christ is risen, He's alive, He's well, and You will be judged based on Him. The dividing line of humanity is righteousness and there is righteousness in nobody else. It is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. But beloved, this has been something that's just been bubbling up in my soul as of late. That this is not merely Christian doctrine. It is Christian doctrine. But this is the reality for all humanity. Every. Every human driving by this place this morning, Christ is Lord. Whether they like it or not, whether they bow the knee or not, Christ is Lord. They will bow the knee. Every single tongue that has ever existed in a human will confess Him as Christ. Will confess Him as Lord. And so many in a non-salvation way. And they'll be damned. He is Lord, but they'll be damned. I pray with all my heart, nobody in this room will confess Him as Lord and then be damned. We confess Him as Lord now. The knee touches the ground now. You see Him for who He is in all of His glorious majesty and you say, Father, I surrender completely before You. You are the sovereign God. You've risen from the grave. You're at the right hand of the Father, accomplishing all things according to your purpose. You will be returning at the exact nanosecond you have decided. I am your servant, and you are my master. Beloved, that is not merely a truth for us. That's a truth for everybody. This world will be judged by this truth. So rejoice, you've been born again, you're new. That empty tomb is one of the greatest, if not the greatest joy-producing pieces to who we are as a people. Every true believer, my last point, I may have said that, I don't know, but my, truly, truly, truly my last point. You could read this, what I, what, what we, what I preach today, in Acts 9. And you can glibly say, yeah, that was Saul. His was dramatic and powerful and mine wasn't. Theologically, you were not saved with any less drama than the Apostle Paul. Now, circumstantially, in the sense of the light, the voice, and all those kinds of things, I didn't experience that that day with my mom. But theologically, both Saul and Dan Mason went from dead man to alive man spiritually. And so don't you dare, don't you dare read Acts 9 and say, that was just a particular event in the life of one man. No, beloved, anybody born again is a miracle of grace. You are a miracle of sovereign grace if this morning you are alive spiritually and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus. That risen Savior confronted you and brought you to himself. We are flooded with reasons to worship our Savior this morning. Let's pray together.